1: Welcome to the special Big Dance edition of the Varsity Blue Podcast. Tim's currently in an unmarked van, slowly driving through the streets of Pahokee, putting together the latest recruiting updates. So it's just me, Paul, in the studio. On the line with us to discuss the Big Dance and Michigan's tourney appearance, we have frequent diarist and frequent unicorn lurker, Jamie Mack. The man who has gambled more money away than Barry Stearns on the line. Uh, Jamie, how are you doing today?
0: I'm I'm, do, I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right.
1: The bank account is actually not uh, not bad this Monday morning. But you there's had support, a... but there's a lot of basketball left, <laughs> so, you know. You had a good <laughs> tournament weekend, a very profitable one? Uh yeah, you know, it was uh it, it was uh, it's it's been an up and down uh,
0: couple weeks uh as it always is in the gambling circuit, but uh I I tell you what, I I lay off uh gambling for much of February so I can uh really hit March hard. It's 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 really kind of like a it's, it's really almost like bowl season for me. You know? I, mean, I like gambling on all the bowl games, and then once these conference tournaments start, I really can't seem to get enough of it. <laughs> so, uh, Sadly, sadly I, 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 uh, I have to report that I won a lot of money on the Ohio State Buckeyes this weekend, including that, that worthless three-pointer that Diebler threw up last night. At the end of the game, it went in and it covered the spread. <laughs> <laughs> well, he might be my favorite Buckeye of all time right now.
1: You might as well profit off of them if they're going to win everything. Exactly. Uh, so, why don't you talk a little bit about your television setup for these tournaments or bowl games, because it's always been sort of impressive to me. Okay.
0: Well, um, you know,
1: it, uh, it goes back to
0: football season as well, uh, but I'm a, I'm a junkie when it comes to college football and college basketball, and I love all the action you know, in all corners of the country. And uh, I always make sure to have uh, a few TVs set up. Uh, right now, I'm I'm sitting here looking at them. I've got four TVs set up, one main one, and then three lined up on this uh, this very sturdy coffee <laughs> table that's about two feet high off the ground. And uh, you know, I just. Uh, I I have them all fired up usually. And it it can be actually quite disappointing on a college football or a college basketball Saturday when I don't have use for for, for one of them. I I get really angry at the TV folks. It's like, hey, I got one TV, show another game. (laughs) But, uh, you know, there's other sports. I think ESPN had some baseball going on all weekend, you know, with the uh, international series there. But uh, it it really starts from, uh, you know, from football. You know, that ABC 330 setup in the middle of the day. Um you know, you got you got to have it, you know, because the best Pac-10 game, the best Big 12 game, the best Big 10 game, all of them, the best of the day, usually go on at 3.30 at the same time. So
1: if I'm not up at the big house, I'd like to keep an eye on all the games. Definitely. Yeah. All right, so let's get into this. Uh, I think to fully appreciate the gravity of Michigan finally getting a bid, we kind of need to go into the history of it a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so let's let's go back to the last tournament bid. You know, I wrote about this last night. I I vague. I was twelve, which kind of says how long ago it was. <laughs> I vaguely remember Robert Trailer at the line. You know, having to make one and miss one uh, it, when they were down three to UCLA, and yeah. then it's just it was just kind of a black hole from there on. What what do you remember from that era? Well,
0: uh, specifically that last game against UCLA, the, it was a, uh, the Bruins were a six seed with Baron Davis on their team of all, you know, I mean, and, and, and between all the guys on the court, uh, he's ended up with, with far and away the best uh, pro career. Um, but the, the, they were the six seed and the Wolverines were the, were the three seed. And, um, then the Bruins went on, and I believe they got their doors blown off by Duke in the regional semifinals. But, uh, um, what I remember about that specific era was just a lot of talented teams that could not come together uh, to put together, you know, any consistency. You know, not many Big Ten teams back then had as much talent as Michigan, but they always seemed to just kind of plod their way, um, you know, to a 9-9 and season or a 10-8 and season. You know, the, the, the Big Ten tournament champions that year, you know, they had to win a couple games late that season just to put themselves in that large position. And the year before, they couldn't even qualify for the uh, NCAA. They just hit the Big Ten schedule, and they, and they hit the skids. But generally, what I remember from that era of, of basketball was from 1985 through 1998, uh, the University of Michigan, this is going to be hard to believe for people your age who are just getting out of college and are in their 20s, they were year in and year out, a top-ten program, it wasn't a matter of being on the bubble. It was a matter of, you know, are they going to be on the one line, the two line, or the three line? Every year it was like that, and uh, I mean, there were there were one or two seasons where there was, there was a dip, but no program collected as much talent as as Michigan did over that uh, over that uh, ten to fifteen year stretch. And it's very hard to believe. I heard the pundits on TV last night all talk about this. It's very hard to believe that we're at the end of an 11-year NCAA tournament drought because it Used to be, it used to be, you know, basketball. It used to be as much of a basketball school as a football school uh, back then. Well, that's that, so. That's kind of what I remember specifically and generally about that era.
1: Well, let's let's talk about how Michigan acquired that talent, and it all kind of came to a head when uh, Robert Trailer's SUV rolled over with a certain recruit in the back seat. Yes, Mateen Cleves. I, you
0: know, I that might actually be. I, I don't really remember. Too many actual games, you know, in the Taylor Trailer Bullock area. You know, Bullock area. Not many like games stand stand out. <laughs> but it all seems to be overwhelmed in my memory by a car crash. <laughs> well, you could say. You that know, and car I, I remember. To... I remember. I was. Uh, I wasn't even anywhere near the area, and I heard the news of that crash, and I was like, "Oh gosh, an SUV." It was like leased to like uh, Maurice Taylor's aunt. I was like, "This this can't be good," <laughs> you
1: know. You could argue that that car crash had a bigger impact on Michigan basketball than any game in that era.
0: Oh yeah, it did. It did. It did. It. Uh, you know, it really it, it launched it launched all sorts of investigations, and it launched Mateen Cleaves up into uh, up to East Lansing. And I, and I know the Flintstones were very talented back then, but I, I, they don't win a national championship without that little point guard. <laughs> oh,
1: he was definitely the heart. I remember him hopping back on the floor against Syracuse, getting the crowd pumped up. Oh yeah, that two thousand season, like. I, I know I'm a Michigan fan, and I shouldn't like it, but, man, I love that state team that year. Yeah, they were, they, were very, they were very fun to watch, and they did the Big Ten proud. And,
0: uh, you know, they were just exciting. They were a power team. You know, I don't, I don't really Definitely. know if the Big Ten has had a power team like that uh, uh, since. I mean, I know you can argue Odin and Conley at Ohio State, but that was such a quick one-and-done thing. They didn't have time to grow into a power team. But that was, you know, I, I truly think the last, power team that we've seen out of the Big Ten. And it was fun to watch them grow because they went from making the tournament, you know, getting into the Sweet 16 and losing, and then getting into the Final Four and losing, and then finally winning it all. So it was fun to watch them grow. But you watch and you see the team Cleves and you're like, "Ah, maybe if somebody else was driving the car
1: that night or something, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Or if it was a safer SUV, right? Yeah, really. So let's talk about that ensuing scandal. You know, Michigan had to forfeit some scholarships. They had a self-imposed postseason ban. Just a lot of stuff that really it is taking them until now to recover from.
0: Yeah, and I think the one thing that that uh, that hurt them in that scandal, I mean, all scandals are going to hurt you. You know, I mean, that, that's uh, I guess that's the point of getting caught up in a scandal. You're supposed to have damage. But it was not quick and it was not clean. I, you know, it lingered over the program for a good four to five years um, when the NCAA finally sort of, Not not to exonerate them because they still had guilt, but when they finally cleared them and said, "All right, you're off this probation," you know, we were what six to seven years removed. Yeah, basically everyone involved is gone from that car accident. And and I and I know that we like to, uh, you know, I mean, Amaker had his faults, you know, but but the fact is, you know, when he arrived in town, I still think he had a hard time convincing recruits that the team wasn't going to be on probation for another three to four years.
1: Well, let's talk because I
0: think that, that that was a strong possibility. You know, the NCAA hadn't really come down with their ruling yet, and it just it lingered over the program. It really was a de facto death penalty in the sense that whether it was Fisher the last year or Ellerbe or Amaker, they couldn't get recruits because they couldn't look them in a the straight face and say, yes, we're going to be eligible for the postseason because they didn't know.
1: Yeah. Well, let's talk about the Amaker era. I remember uh, hearing about his hiring and being fairly excited. I mean, he brought the, the Seton Hall team to the Sweet 16, yeah, had good yeah. success, good coaching mm-hmm. pedigree, and then he came to Michigan and he started out well. You know, he got some good classes, Daniel Horton, Lester Abrams, Chris Hunter all in one class, Courtney Sims yeah. and Deion Harris in the next. Um, but what happened? You know, it, it just never seemed to come together. It's like those Steve Fisher era teams just with less talent. Uh, actually, that's a very good comparison, Paul. That's a very good comparison because
0: they, they never were able to come together you know, and go on a consistent enough run where their tournament position was secure. And at the same time, they didn't have enough talent on the court where when they needed to win one game to put them in, you know, they just didn't have it. Um,
1: people forget Amaker, Amaker's clubs got to the finish line
0: three different years.
1: There was 04, uh, uh, 06, uh, I believe, and 03. Yep, yep,
0: exactly. Where you know one more win would have put them in a in a in a position to make the you know the tournament. I, I you know of all those moments, the one that I, I look back on is the old 06 season where they had to beat a lame duck Mike Davis coached Indiana team in the final, and it was one of those games where all the pundits were like, "Ooh, you know, in advance of the Big Ten tournament, this is a playing game." They lost multiple double digit beats in the second half, and somehow found a way to lose to Mike Davis.
1: And I think that might have been finally the straw that broke the camel's back on the Amaker era. Yeah, frankly, yeah. He
0: lasted, he lasted one more year, I think, because that that class was coming back for the for a senior run and 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 whatnot. And uh, you know, when they didn't when they didn't materialize NCAA birth the next season, I, I yeah, he was he was he was gone.
1: Yeah, and frankly, I was I was surprised by the Amaker firing just kind of because of uh, his position with Mary Sue Coleman and yeah. sort of the. Athletic department's reluctance to do uh, big mm. name or big moves, uh, and and with the recruiting class coming in with Manny Harris and Alex Legion and Kelvin Grady, three big names. Uh, yeah. So what 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 was your initial reaction to uh, John Beeline when his name was first floated out there? Well, honestly, I was I was really excited. Um, I was I was
0: I was really excited having watched uh, having watched him. Uh, cobble together some NCAA tournament teams at both Richmond and and West Virginia. Um, yeah, you know, this is a guy that's won everywhere, and, and he's won in places where you wouldn't necessarily think of basketball, uh, especially compared to the conference that, that 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 he was in. But the main reason why I was excited about about uh, the hiring of Bayline, Beeline rather, is that uh, you know I hate to drop names of friends, etc., etc. but I actually have a friend who played college basketball at Canisius under Coach Beeline. And, you know, so for a couple of years, we're watching these West Virginia teams and we're loving them, you know, because he was, this, you know, so through his testimonial, I was pretty excited. I was like, they, they, got, they got a guy who knows, who knows basketball. And, and my friend Brian, who played at Canisius, uh, you know, never really got off the bench, but he was like, he, he was, he was he has told me that, You're never out of a game with this guy. He just knows basketball. He knows how to uh, come up with game plans and adjust on the fly. And at the same time, if you can get his system going, you're exchanging three for two a lot, (laughs) which is good.
1: He also seems to be the first coach, uh, and out of the coaches, I'm thinking of Fisher, Ellerbe, and Amaker. The first coach who actually has a system or has an X's and O's type approach rather than, Get somebody really good and hope that's enough. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely.
0: I, I never quite grasped what Tommy Amaker's approach to the game was. I, I believe I,
1: it was wave your finger around and pretend that's a play and hope Dan Deion Harris makes a shot. Yeah. Well, and the sad fact with Tommy Amaker
0: is he's a num- he's a number two guy.
1: You know, he became the hot
0: commodity coach. Granted, you referenced the Seton Hall situation, but you know, he became um, you know the hot commodity coach because of the ESPN machine which continually, to this day, promotes all the Duke assistants as the next guys. I mean, you know, even yesterday during the game, they had a close-up on Steve Wojciechowski and talking about him as the future coach. And I'm like, well, you know what? Based on what Quinn Snyder and Tommy Amaker have done and what Johnny Dawkins did this year at Stanford, maybe we've got to slow that bandwagon a little bit. But that's just not
1: going to happen. Yeah, give me the Tom Izzo coaching tree any day over the Coach coaching tree. Well, we, we, we've we got one of those in the conference down in Bloomington with yep. Tom Crane. So. And he's going to turn that program around sooner rather than later. Uh, yeah, I, I think
0: so. Uh, you know, I, I did a quick look at the at the recruiting lists, and they've got about a half dozen
1: guys on that ESPN or ESPN on the rivals,
0: rather, top 150.
1: So. And full disclosure, uh, they definitely have talent coming in down there. Full disclosure, you went to Indiana. Yes, I did. <laughs> I did.
0: Full full disclosure, I did go to Indiana, which even makes it even more of a head scratcher to me that Tommy Amaker pulled a big goose egg career <laughs> against Mike Davis. I mean, that's, that's just hard to do. I, well, think it was, oh, I think 0-10 was the final score there.
1: Tommy Amaker is a special kind of coach. <laughs> so is. so let's get into this season. I remember yeah. coming in, like most people were thinking, NIT, maybe make a little run in there. And then the UCLA game happened, and yeah. that kind of changed the paradigm. It sure did.
0: Um, yeah, I would tend to think that uh, I, I might, like myself, had the same expectations everybody else did. I mean, I just wanted the team to... Better, you know. I just wanted to, them to improve and, and be competitive. Uh, the, the mere concept of competing in the Big Ten and, and playing in the postseason seemed like, well, let's just see what we have first, you know. And uh, the UCLA win, followed up by the Duke win, r- really made the season. You know, w- without without those wins, they're they're in the NIT right now with the nine and nine Big Ten record.
1: Um, it ended up being. You know, I believe
0: the final chips that got the that got them the uh, the pot here, as far as an NCAA tournament bid.
1: And that and that kind of seems to be the beeline mo. Like a lot of times, you'll you'll win the games you're supposed to win. Like I remember, we didn't drop any to like the Savannah State's, Eastern no. Michigan, Oakland, and you, maybe you can pick off one of the big boys every once in a while. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, I mean, and when you look back at the season, I think that
0: you know, there were probably two games that you wish they could have back as far as uh, picking off the big boys, you know, not not being able to beat Ohio State up at Chrysler and not being able to beat Michigan State up at Chrysler, uh, even though they were in both those games. Mm-hmm. Um, but otherwise, you know, when when there was a big foe on the table, somehow, some way, this team came through, and, and I never really got the impression that there was a lot of confidence in the fan base that they were... That they were going to win, you know. I don't think people thought they were going to blow Purdue out there at the end of the season. I know people didn't think they were going to beat Minnesota to close the year, um, and there was no there was no expectation way back in November going into that uh, UCLA game. I
1: right sort of get sure. as a defense mechanism, Michigan fans just didn't want to let themselves get too excited. You know, they didn't they were hopeful, but they're they're cautiously optimistic. They didn't want yeah. to let themselves get taken away by it.
0: Well, you know, when it comes to Michigan athletics, I, you know, I think that obviously there's a great great, great winning tradition, but there is definitely an element of Red Sox curse all across the board, <laughs> whether, it's, whether it's losing to Notre Dame in three or four overtimes last year in hockey, or whether it's Cordell Stewart to Michael Westbrook, you know, we've definitely seen it all, and, uh, you know.
1: The highs are not as good without the lows. No, absolutely not. Absolutely
0: not. Now, you know, getting back to this year and the expectations, you know, that that Coaches vs. Cancer Classic, you know, they played two gimmies earlier against Michigan Tech and Northeastern. Uh, But Northeastern was a club that I thought was going to compete all year in the Colonial, and in fact, they did. They held first place most of the year until they kind of fell apart at the end. Senior team with a lot of scoring, and Michigan just shut them out, you know, completely. Uh, They had the 1-3-1 going. Some guy named David Merritt, (laughs) but <laughs> like was all over the place on defense. I, I I it forced me to look him up, you know. I was like, Who is this guy? He's a walk on, never played last year, and, and he's coordinating this defense against this senior laden team. Now, that's northeastern. I certainly didn't expect him to beat UCLA, but I was like, Well, you know, the Big Ten's not that great. You know, maybe this team can win it win it, win its fair share of games in the Big Ten and they improved at the end last year, so
1: um
0: that that game sort of opened up my eyes to some extent that they were catching on to uh, uh, b system. You know, he talked all fall about how he didn't have to teach kids how to do drills anymore. You know, he was able to just, you know, run practices and how practices were 100% better. I'm like, yeah, that's coach speak. But then I watched that, that second game of the year, and I was like, wow, yeah, they're, they're, they're running this 1-3-1 zone uh, to perfection. And, and then, you know, when they back their way to a victory over UCLA, all of a sudden it was like, holy crap. Yeah, you know, I got a text message from my aforementioned friend both after the UCLA and the Duke wins. You know, and, and he was basically like, "You guys are back. You know, this guy is going to take you places."
1: And uh, he still needed a little bit of a talent infusion, I think, but it's coming. Oh, and we have some big recruits coming in. Oh, let's let's get into the actual tournament here. Sure. Uh, obviously, Michigan, the number ten seed, playing against number seven seed Clemson in uh, Kansas City. And do you think beeline teams have an advantage when it comes to tournaments where there's not as much time to scout your opponents, where where his unusual system can really kind of surprise and kind of change and dictate the game?
0: Oh, I I, I absolutely think so. The, the 1-3-1 zone is something you do not, as it pertains to this game especially, the 1-3-1 zone is something you do not see uh, in ACC country at all. And... Uh, it's going to be it's going to it's it's tough for teams to, to figure out. Um, you know, I think it's even tougher. You know, in in a in a second round game with 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 such a quick uh, with such a quick turnaround. But I I do like I do like the strategic matchup. I, I don't think Clemson has seen this before, and um, it's just tough to play. You know, there are there are some styles which which is just like say you know, pedal to the metal. You know. 90 feet of hell type of style, those aren't that, as hard to prepare for uh, as something like a 1-3-1 zone. I mean, you get the ball in your offense set and all of a sudden there's this weird sort of zone trap defense that that you're, that you're facing. You know, and It's definitely a style that I think uh, is going to be hard to prepare for.
1: And let's talk about Clemson specifically. I actually think this might be a fairly good matchup because they don't have that across the board height advantage that most other teams have against Michigan. Um, I think we actually, uh, Stu Douglas is actually uh, taller than the guy he'll probably be checking. Yeah. Novak's only giving up an inch. Uh, Sims is only giving up an inch. And I think that could be really big for the team in this uh, matchup.
0: Yeah, I think so. I, I think that um, there definitely are worse, you know, matchups out there. Say if they had drawn a Florida State team, for example, which has, it seems like they bring four or five guys, you know, in the 6'9", 6'10", range, you know, to the to the table, Um so this is a good ACC uh, uh, team to draw by comparison. Um, the one thing that makes me nervous about Clemson is they have a lot more scoring uh, than Michigan. They've got uh, their top three scores all average between 14 and, and 16 points a game. You know, Michigan, there's a big drop off from their second to third scorer, um, and then Clemson even has more depth as far as scoring goes as you go as you go down the line. Uh, you know, Michigan plays a lot of guys like, like uh C J Lee and David Merritt that don't really score a whole lot. So it's definitely a contrasting in styles. You know, Clemson's gonna want this game in the eighties, Michigan's gonna want it in in the sixties. Um, so to me it's more of a pace situation than a size situation. And I and I think they Beeline, I think the pace can be controlled from the sideline. But you're you know, you're SOL if 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 you have a major size disadvantage, you know, so I think while the scoring worries me, I think Michigan's got a shot here to definitely uh, control uh, tempo and uh,
1: see what happens. So let's say it was a pick 'em. Would, would you, with your own money, would you be willing to bet on Michigan?
0: Uh, yeah, yes, I would be. I would be.
1: Now let's not get too apple pie in the sky. Say they beat Clemson, and the luck doesn't fall our way, and Oklahoma beats the 15 seed. Yes, yeah, so I, I don't think we're
0: going to be seeing Morgan <laughs> State in that matchup.
1: <laughs> we can hope. Although, although, hey, Morgan State beat Maryland. We lost to Maryland, so who knows? Maybe that'd be a challenge. <laughs> uh, so, do you, is, assuming that Blake Griffin remains healthy throughout the tournament, do you think Michigan has a chance against Oklahoma? I don't know. That's
0: going to be a, that's a tough. That's definitely a tough game. The quick turnaround obviously helps as far as uh, they won't they won't necessarily be able to combat the 1-3-1. One, one. Um, the thing with Oklahoma is they're way more uh, than Blake Griffin. You know his brother is there and was a top recruit. You know Willie Warren plays their point, plays uh, plays their lead guard, and you know he, he's on a lot of uh, first round NBA draft boards. And the kid's only a freshman. They got a lot of talent uh, on that team, um, but at the same time, I've definitely seen more powerful Oklahoma teams falter in the tournament uh, than this one. Um, but that would definitely be a, a tough matchup. But any team that can beat the Duke and UCLA, you know, can, and and compete with UConn up in stores can can certainly compete here. You know, I mean, I think with with those teams, particularly the UConn outcome, you know, they're 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 used to seeing, you know, deep teams with big wide bodies. You know, they certainly won't be uh, they certainly won't be intimidated. True. Um Both I, teams have beaten Purdue this year, so I I'd, think there's a there's a comparison there. Uh, there's a comparison there. Um, but they've got, you know, I, I referenced the the Willie Warren kid. They've got a couple other freshmen, and they seem to really hit the wall as the year went on. And then you could say that, well, you know, Griffin had his concussion, you know, and maybe and maybe that hurt. But they just don't look like the same Oklahoma team the last couple of weeks that they looked like in December and January.
1: That that is, and you true. could say you
0: could say the exact same thing about Clemson. By the way, you know, they were sixteen and zero at one point, but they are seven and eight in their final fifteen games and uh, this is Clemson I'm talking about, you know, three weeks ago, the day that Michigan lost to Iowa, and it looked like Michigan was heading to the NIT, and that day, Clemson was still in contention for a two or three seed, and they've they stumbled down the stretch all the way down to a seven line, so I think in both Oklahoma and Clemson, you have two teams that, that, that played their best basketball early in the year and have to kind of key it back up, whereas Michigan, you know, I, I don't want to say they're peaking, because they, they didn't look that great in their last game against Illinois, but
1: they had to come through with some clutch wins down the stretch, or they don't get in this tournament. So they're actually playing
0: some of their better ball of the year.
1: I guess I just have visions of Zach Novak matched one on one against Blake Griffin, and it just scares me. So let's let's. Get yeah, he t- didn't quite <laughs> see a guy like Blake Griffin when he was playing small school uh, <laughs> Northern Indiana basketball, did he? No. So so let's get into what exactly it means for the Wolverines to finally break that ten-year curse and uh, get into the tournament. Like, what what do you think it'll mean for this program?
0: Well, I mean, it, 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 there are some obvious recruiting ramifications. You know, I mean, I, I think that uh, the coaching staff can now go in uh, to recruits and tell them, "Hey, we're not rebuilding anymore. You know, we've arrived. We need you now to help us take the next step from being, you know, a tournament team to being a Final Four team." You know, and and. I know that everybody says, and this is playing out obviously with with, with football. Uh, but there's more spots to be had there. You know, everybody says, oh well, when you have a down year, you got a lot of playing time, and that that's going to be attractive to kids. But it's a little bit different, I think, in basketball. You know, a lot of a lot of, a lot of top recruits in basketball only expect to be on campus for for a year or two. Um, I think they want to compete in March Madness right right off the bat. It's it's a harder sell. A, a, when your team is rebuilding, and, and sometimes playing time immediately isn't the same carrot as it is in football recruiting, and I, and I think this is going to mean a world of difference because you know, you could literally tell kids we're not rebuilding anymore, but we definitely need you to help us get you know over the hump and and become a national contender, and that I think is something that will get into kids' ears and and will and will inspire them to maybe want to come to Michigan, but uh, you know. It, it just means we can go on and on and on and on about it. I mean, it it, it was 11 long years without a tournament, and I, I often wondered how they could get kids to come to Michigan. I mean, the the, the 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 probation umbrella was so heavy for so long, that scared people away. And then just general mediocrity, you know, it's like, it it, it, it it was definitely a hard sell. It's very impressive that guys like Sims and Manny Harris even ended up here, you know, to begin with. But, I think this is going to be an absolute coup for the program uh, going forward. Unfortunately, the Big Ten appears to be on the big-time uptick, so they can't rest on their laurels. You know, and but it, I love the way the program's going.
1: Even beyond recruiting, it seems like there's been just a lot more excitement. Maybe it's just because the team has actually been fun to watch for the first time in a long time. Yeah, but there were there were 1,500 to 2,000 uh, people to watch the selection show at Chrysler. I can't imagine that have happened during the Amaker era. There's, there's a whole uh, – the athletic department announced that when you purchase your football tickets, you can also purchase uh, student season tickets for basketball uh, on the same form. So, you know, Beeline joked around, you can get your parents to pay for both. Uh, it just go. seems like there's a lot more athletic department be- support behind the sport with the new practice facility uh, changing the way you can purchase tickets. It's it's like the basketball team is no longer a black eye to the university. Yeah, and I and
0: I think that's a big I think that's a big key. Uh, I think it was I think that was evolving you know anyway this this year even if they even even if they didn't get a bid, but I, I definitely think that's a key point because I thought for years there earlier in this decade that the athletic department didn't really care if the basketball team won or lost. They just wanted the basketball team to stay out of trouble, um, you know, and become you know wear the white hat again. You know, I I really don't think that they had an emphasis on on winning. Um, Just because, you know, these these issues they had in the late 90s were were so, you know, they were just bad. I mean, you know, there was, was, you know, guys were connected to bookies. Um, It just was so bad. I think that they weren't connected to winning. And when you're not connected to winning, you're not really going to promote the program either. But I I think that uh, we're so many years now beyond that, and now that they've had a little bit of success, um, it's good. It's good to see the athletic department uh, on board because I, I, you said black eye. Uh, I, I kind of always considered the basketball
1: program the, the the stepchild that they kept locked up. You know, they just <laughs> didn't want too many people to know about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jamie Mac, uh, thanks for your time. It's been good talking to you. It was great talking to you too, Paul. All right, and that was uh, Jamie Mack. and you can. You can check out his diaries at mgoblog.com slash diaries slash Mac. And he had the best bubble watch leading up to the big dance, in my opinion. I read him every week. And this has been the Varsity Blue podcast, special tournament edition. Keep checking back all week, and let's go blue in the tournament. Thanks for listening. Bye.